0: Hello, hello climate warriors. Welcome back to the Climate Network. Today's guest is someone who has traveled far and wide to report on how climate change impacts people with disabilities. But that's just not it. Why don't I let him introduce himself?
1: <laughs> Hi there, Deep Shah. My name is Jason Strother. I am an American multimedia journalist and educator. Uh, I teach journalism at montclair state university in new jersey Uh, but you know for the past 20 years i i've worked in 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 the news industry mostly as a freelance correspondent based in seoul south korea um and i'm also a national geographic explorer and most recently a u.s fulbright scholar
0: uh, I don't know this is your umpteenth visit to Orissa
1: <laughs> I guess technically my third this year but it, uh, it, it feels like home
0: I thank you thank you so much for that and Odias are also known for their kindness and hospitality I hope you're having a good time here
1: Always always uh, you know and this is something um that really left an impression on me you know when I arrived here at you know at, in February earlier this year uh, you know, so quickly. I, I was impressed by the, the hospitality, just the kindness and just uh, openness of people. There, there was no reason to help this foreign American journalist, Fulbright researcher, coming in here talking about climate change and disability. But everyone opened doors for me. It was so easy to meet people here, uh, more more so than the other places that I've worked in this year, uh, and that really enabled me to, I, I think, really dig deep into the, my my project while I was in Odessa. And yeah, it's full credit to the people of your state.
0: I'm going to address the elephant in the room. You've already mentioned it. Mm. Why should anybody listen to you? a person who's from us who doesn't stay here who doesn't understand the state uh-huh. the language the people and you're representing a community which is very vulnerable uh-huh. and they've accepted you and in very diverse
1: um yeah so um certainly that that that's a great question and i think that is a question that a lot of people are asking about the role of foreign journalists foreign correspondents you know what does someone from another culture from another background uh you know who perishes Shoots into a new place. You know what can they really say uh, about the land that they have arrived in? Um, and especially, you know, and, and of course, there's a lot of um, you know. It's often been journalists from Western countries, white men, which I'm one of, uh, you know, that have had these roles. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of negative baggage uh, attached with that, and 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 deserved baggage too. Um, but what I can say is that. You know, I think the best role of a foreign correspondent is that they come to a new place without, you know, with a new, fresh perspective, uh, that they can land in a place like Odisha or, or wherever and and see things anew. And if they also are... Also
0: without biases,
1: I think. Well, sure. I mean, they probably come with their own biases from North America or wh- wherever they're from. Uh, but I think a good journalist will do their best to set aside those biases and, and talk to as many local people and, and, and a diverse group of local people as possible uh, to help inform their viewpoint. Uh, and I mean, I think, I think curiosity is, is what all journalists or journalists should share in common. Uh, so yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, I'll speak for myself, you know, I was really interested. I had never heard of Odisha Never heard of Boo let's say, three years ago.
0: That was going to be my question. Sure. Uh, you worked in Maldives. You worked in Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, mm-hmm. India. You lived in South Korea yeah. for years together About covering 15. North Korea.
1: I've reported from at least a dozen countries. So wow. I've been, yeah, I've, and I've traveled to I don't know, a few dozen countries. Uh, but so. how
0: did you end up in Orissa?
1: So um, I was applying for this Fulbright Grant. So the Fulbright is a, um, a a fellowship. Let's say from the U.S. government. Uh, it's largely for academics, but also for other professionals, including journalists, also artists. Um, And they had a South and Central Regional Research Award uh, that they were offering in 2021 uh, for the academic year of 2022 and 2023. Uh, So I could pick three countries in South or Central Asia to conduct my fieldwork. And I thought, I, I knew I wanted to expand on my reporting about how climate change impacts people with a disability. Uh, and so I wanted to get as many countries in as possible. Um, I'm always someone who's done relatively short reporting trips, two weeks to a month, uh, to do do stories. So I felt, you know, normally a Fulbright is like 10 months long, and I thought that 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 would be too long in any one place, especially for this type of reporting. So... India had to be part of that. If I was going to spend time in in South Asia, it had you know India you know needed to be one of the countries that I picked. Uh, so I I Googled. India, climate change, disability. And all the references that came up toward the top were based here in Bhubaneswar. Amazing. Uh, in, in, in particular, the uh, the SMRC, uh, which is run uh, by Asha Hans, a, a retired professor from Utkul University here, and um, whose brother, uh, the late Ashok Hans, started this organization back in, in the 80s, I believe. And they had a, a lot of resources on their website about climate change and how it impacts people with disabilities in Odisha and I thought what is, what is this Odisha is it a city is it a state no idea so I I reached out to Asha Hans and I got an email back from her really quick and uh, she said look if you're gonna come and she's a Fulbright alumna herself uh, she said look if you're gonna come, to India to research climate change and disability. There's a lot going on here in the state of Odisha. Uh, You know, we are very vulnerable to cyclones forming in the Bay of Bengal. And, you know, ever since 1999, the super cyclone, there has been a lot of work here, a lot of progress in DRR. And the disability community here in the state have really pushed for disability accessibility accessibility and inclusion in disaster risk reduction protocol. So it just made sense to do that, uh, to, to choose Odisha as my, uh, my base for a few months as part of this, this program.
0: You mentioned the community. Could you please tell us a little about the community? The, sure. I, I believe that is one of the largest minority groups, which is so diverse. That's that right. Pulling them all together would have been a task.
1: Well, that's the thing, right? So, okay. So, you know, according to the World Health Organization, UN, the global figures for disability is that around, you know, up to 16, between 15 and 16% of the global population, one out of five people, one billion people have some type of physical, sensory, or developmental learning disability uh you know in the u.s we say 25 percent of americans one out of four of Amer- americans have a, a certain type of disability that in- includes myself i i have a low vision disability uh which i guess an inf- has informed my life experience uh, has informed my reporting on these topics uh so but i think there is some debate whether or not it, you know is is it really a global community um People who are totally blind might not see a lot of connections with, you know, people who have Down syndrome, for instance. Um, in America, we have, you know, what people would call the Deaf, capital D, Deaf community. Many people who are hard of hearing uh see themselves as a very unique, having a very unique identity. They have their own language. They have their own means of communications. Uh, they, they have their own university, uh, Gallaudet in, in Washington, D.C. There is deaf culture, uh, some would say. And I, I'm hearing that now with people who are on the autism spectrum. They want to be called autistic because they see it as the most important uh, mark of their identity um, and that's not the same for everybody we, we don't really hear that too much out of people who have a vision disability talking about the blind capital there's no capital B blind community that, that that at least hasn't taken off yet uh, I wouldn't necessarily consider myself a part of that community. I I think having a low vision impairment is just one of of many uh, characteristics that make up who Jason is. Um, So, you know, you know, community could be a little journalistic or academic shorthand to talk about the the entire population of people with disabilities. But, you know, you know, if you look at what things that would typically bind a community together in in any context uh, is that I, I think. People with all types of disabilities, you know, regardless if it's you know they use a wheelchair or they need assistive technology to read, as I do, uh, or you know perhaps you know require some sort of um, services, educational services to uh, you know assist with dyslexia or or other some sort of uh, learning disability. They all need an accessibility. The the common thread, the through line, is that people with a disability often requires some form of accessible device, software, infrastructure, or or services. So I think if there's any, you know, commonality that this population has that could justify it as being a community is, is the need for accessibility.
0: Would you say vulnerability is also something that ties everybody and all these uh physical and invisible disabilities together.
1: Sure, sure. I mean, and thank you for making that distinction. I mean, many people have a disability, but you would never know it.
0: Could you give us a few examples? I mean,
1: some people who are on the autism spectrum, you know, what used to be called Asperger's um, syndrome. Uh, you know, these people uh, who are on this particular range of the autism spectrum, They have jobs, they they work fine, they have families, you know, they, you know, you wouldn't know if if you bumped into them at the supermarket that there was anything, but the way they process information, the way they communicate, let's say, you know, to someone who's not Tuned into where they are on the spectrum might seem uh, different. Uh, and, you know, maybe they do need us. Maybe when they were in university or, or in elementary education, maybe they would have needed some sort of, you know, educational materials to support them, some sort of uh, uh, job training or, or, or some sort of other um, uh, counseling therapy therapy. Uh, to help them adjust and and have a job and uh, you know and improve communication skills. Of course, it varies, you know, autism has such a range, you know, it, it really varies person to person. Uh, but that's a type of invisible disability or dyslexia. You've, how would you know if someone is dyslexic unless maybe you you know force them to you know read a book in front of you?
0: I believe most of the time they also do not know about the words, about the, the literature or uh, even the fact that they might, be autistic or be dyslexic or um, yeah. is there no, there's nothing, no hard and fast rule that shows you that you, you know what, you are differently able to you're sure. a person with disabilities and you should be availing X, Y, Z policies and protocols. Right. Not? And you
1: know, and I, and I hear, you know, I think within the autism community uh, there, and here I hear go autism community, but at least people who I d- have identified as having autism, um, you know, there is a lot of pushback. It's you know, w- you know, what what do these normies, you know, want us to think that we're all different? So what if we, you know, are obsessed with trains or you I know love they,
0: the word normies?
1: Yeah. <laughs> so that's you know, uh, you know, it, it, there's there's pushback to some of these classifications, and you know, is this mainstream society just trying to make people who are a little different conform to social norms? And it, it's I, a I, taboo hear, as I hear I hear that. Well, yeah, certain. I mean, I and I think in some countries it's you Disability is more stigmatized than in other yes. places, but but certainly, you know. I and I, you know, I, I grew up in a certain time where, you know, I, I certainly have felt self conscious about my own disability. I have certainly have tried to hide it at certain points in my life, uh, and otherwise, uh, you know, under play it, you know, uh, m- may- maybe give it less importance uh, than it actually is, or, or, you know, in some ways uh, denying that I have a disability, uh, more so when I was young uh, than now. Um, but yeah, sure. And we call that ableism, right? You know, yes. We, yeah, yes. We, yeah, and so. then there are
0: so many myths around it as well. Say, for example, uh, squint eye. Uh, yeah. In India, they believe that if you have squint eyes, you're lucky. And uh, yeah. so you bring in a lot of wealth yeah, right. so and I, they don't correct it.
1: So, yeah, I did a report about that back in 2012 during my first trip to India. I, I went around with some uh, advocates in, in Delhi uh, trying that were trying to convince families to get corrective surgery for their children who had crossed eyes, a squint. Um, and, but because of this superstition that it's an auspicious sign that it brings a family good luck, some families were reluctant. Uh, But the problem is if that kind of condition isn't corrected when a child is young, it can lead to permanent vision loss. And I saw that in this family. They had multiple people in this family who at different ages who had this condition. And I think for the Eldest daughter, it was too late to do anything corrective and she had low vision. But I think they did have success in getting the, this son who was at the time you know, seven or eight years old uh, to get corrective surgery.
0: I call that selective ignorance. One of the gaps that I have recognized exists here mm. that you choose to be ignorant about it, whereas you could have helped your, the person who is in your care. The primary caregiver decides to ignore it uh, happens with autism all the time.
1: Sure.
0: Happens with, uh, like you said, squint eyes and cross eyes.
1: And there could be a gender bias there too. Is a family going to be more likely to get corrective if they're going to spend money or resources getting a corrective surgery for something like that that can be corrected? You know, are they going to uh, prefer giving that to the son over the daughter? I mean, these are concerns too.
0: Absolutely. And can we discuss the common vulnerabilities that the community faces?
1: I think vulnerability is something that many people across the board face, uh, but you know I think we have to look at disability generally from a, an intersectional sort of lens uh, from that perspective. And the wealthier you are, the less vulnerable you are. Oh wow! And in terms of disasters, which w- what I'm researching this year, you know, people who have even very severe disabilities that are wealthy. You know, they can live in high-rise apartments, they can afford having a full-time caregiver, they can have access to medications and assistive devices, whereas people who are often really on the front lines of climate change, and I'm thinking of people who I met on the coastline here in Puri or or in other kind of uh, economically depressed areas around the state, these are people who live in poverty, they have, Absolutely. they don't have access to effective assistive devices, or if they a device wheelchair breaks, it could take months to get that repaired or just not at all. Uh, so, right. Uh, vulnerability, your level of vulnerability is often goes in tandem with your level of, of economic mobility. So sure. People with disabilities, you know, uh, you know, are do have certain vulnerabilities that non-disabled people have but I'd say you know you're the the uh, the severity of the vulnerability is impacted by one's wealth
0: very very interesting i'd never thought about the fact that you know uh, 80% of the crowd would be getting government assistance whereas only 20 30% of the the lot would be economically well off enough to provide those facilities to their own
1: Sure and I mean these are systemic things you know why is there a correlation between disability and poverty and I and I think if you look at you know from the start with education if someone who's let's say born with a disability or acquires a disability at a young age are their schools accessible? You know, was that student able to even physically get into their school if there wasn't a lift or a, a ramp? Were there educational materials available in accessible formats like braille or a sign language interpreter? Uh, you know, in the U.S., we've made a lot of progress over the past 30 years with having these services available, uh, but certainly that that does not um, exist in many other countries. Um, so yeah, so I think it's the the lack of access to education at a an early age then uh, complicates one's ability to get a job later on uh, and have all the other benefits that a, a middle class life you know entails. So you know disability can compound these complications uh, and they just kind of you know multiply and multiply.
0: Can we talk about more lacks the the gaps uh, that we see today? in terms of reporting of disabilities, in terms of lack of community stakeholders when there is a a policy discussion that is going on, uh, selective ignorance that we've covered, and uh, a little bit of the policy making as well.
1: Sure. Well, you know, when it comes to policy making, whether it's in the U.S., India, or any other country, people with a disability are not often at the table. It's often non-disabled people that are drafting legislation or, or protocols that impact people with a disability, but they don't actually consult people with a disability for that kind of input. Or if they do have some Disabled advisors, or they they bring people in as consultants, um, for better or worse. And this goes back to the the poverty correlation with disability. The people they bring in are from wealthier classes,
0: affluent, they, educated,
1: exactly. And and many of the advocates that I've spoken to here in Bhubaneswar and elsewhere. Again, they're aware that they are privileged, I'm aware they are privileged, but often they are are humble enough and self-aware enough to know that they don't actually represent all the the vast diversity uh, of people with a disability, especially when you take into consideration the lack of resources that most people with disabilities face. Uh, But You know, again, because of let's say systemic barriers, those people, the really vulnerable people, the people who are have a disability and are very poor, these are not people who are trained on using social media platforms. These are people who don't have an education. They have not had the ability to have their voices heard. So I I mean, yeah, there's gonna be biases if governments only listen to wealthy disabled people, but you know, often these advocates are aware enough to realize that, you know, governments need to, you know, broaden their own perspective rather than just listening to the, advan- the people with disabilities who have these kind of social advantages.
0: That's an interesting idea. I I always assume that because Orissa has a DRR, uh, an SA, PCC, so for people who don't know what a DRR is, it's disaster risk reduction and a state action plan on climate change. So I always assumed if you, ha- if you have a good policy, the implementation might be a problem. But even with the idea that we have stakeholders representing the community, but again, there's a lack there,
1: uh, there in the understanding. There, there's no mention of disability in Odisha's um, climate change action plan for the current year. Uh, so that is something that is, is missing. And I know advocates here
0: have been trying hard, they're yes. They're
1: trying to get that into the next uh, um, uh, documentation.
0: For our listeners, let's make it a little easier. Uh, we'll talk about early disaster uh, resilience. We'll talk about during the disaster, the the services that you require, and then we'll go to post-disaster management, which is response, resilience, and then beyond. Um Given that you have such vast experience in disaster management uh, from the lenses of disability, would you be able to tell us where we've gone wrong? Uh,
1: well, you know, so I I think I had I think it was a good thing that during my stays here in Odisha that a disaster did not occur. So I was unable to to you know, witness firsthand, you know how things you know really come together during a disaster. Um,
0: you left when we were in the peak uh, heat of summer.
1: That's right. you usually a have
0: beginning. a cyclone in summer and one in October.
1: Right. So you well, miss both. Yeah. No, I'm not around. I, you know. I think when I was leaving in May, uh, cyclone Mocha was forming in the Bay of Bengal, but it didn't strike Odisha. You know. I, I think it was. You know. And unfortunately, I think it was targeted. It was aiming. Toward uh, Myanmar. Uh, But even then, it didn't cause, I don't think any, I'm not aware of any significant. But I'm sure you've heard
0: about Fanny and 1999. Of course. So that
1: was, yeah. So, I mean, if you look at the history, the recent history of disaster risk reduction in Odisha, you had 10,000 people die in 1999 during that super cyclone that, you know, even before they started naming cyclones in the region. (laughs) And, you know, that was a real turning point for Odisha as, as well as India. And you know, in the years following that, you had not only the, this state, but across the board, you know, disaster um, protocol being adopted. There, there were action plans, you know, put into effect. And you know, if then, you know, let's fast forward. Then, twenty years, Cyclone Fanny in in two thousand nineteen. I think officially, uh, they only say sixty three people lost their lives, Correct. and that. From what I understand, from what I've read, and from everyone I've talked to, that is due in large part to the advanced protocol that have been implemented. There are uh, are somewhere around 900 storm shelters or facilities used as shelters across Odisha. That was according to the Odisha State Disaster Management Authority. There is in, in on paper there you know they prioritize the evacuation and sheltering of vulnerable populations, which include women, children, the elderly, as well as people with disabilities, uh, and that certainly has you know I, I met someone in in the Ganjam district who back in 2013 during cyclone. Violin, uh, you know, he's a wheelchair user and, you know, ahead of the storm, you know, people, you know, he consented to people coming to his home and they, you know, brought him, you know, they, they transported him to the local shelter, which had been augmented with ramps and as well as disabled friendly, uh, washrooms, restrooms. Uh, and so that, you know, is a positive example. And even, you know, even though I didn't, I did not, have the experience of of witnessing a disaster. While it would have been good for the documentary uh, that I'm (laughs) I'm making, I think it's an overall good for everybody that a disaster didn't happen. But I did get to observe um, a rehearsal on June 19th. So every year, across the state here, uh, local districts and, and blocks and other communities rehearse cyclone preparedness. There, there's kind of a, 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 a rehearsal. So I went down to back to the Ganjam district and uh, visited a community uh, where I got to know some of the uh, disaster management officials there. And they showed us uh, how they their volunteers would go to the home of someone who is disabled and, you know, transport them, you know, in one way or another. put them on a stretcher push them in their wheelchair to the storm shelter and this particular storm shelter that i i I went to uh it was rather new with i think built within the past 10 years and so and are
0: these volunteers trained to handle they
1: have received according to the officials i've spoken with these volunteers have been given some training and just you know by i was unable to witness. I you know I wasn't around for any of the training sessions, but it was clear that these volunteers and these are all young men. You know, probably in their early twenties. Like it, it was clear from the protocol they were following that yeah, they had some knowledge. Uh, but I would say that their training does not. Consider the vast range of disabilities and risks involved with trying to transport people with various disabilities. And that was something that one of the advocates I spoke to here in Bhubaneshwar, Shruti Mahapatra at, at the organization swabhiman said that, you know, she points out that, you know, she's a spinal cord injury patient. She was in a car accident some decades ago. Uh, She said that, you know, if she was in that kind of situation, much more harm could be done than good because with spinal cord injury patients, if you lift them, you can cause them to go into spasms. You can cause much more harm. So she didn't feel that the volunteers, as good of work as they're doing...
0: Plus as a woman... The yeah, people I, need to know where to touch you
1: that's the, of course another concern yes. A- absolutely thank you for pointing N- that out
0: nobody talks about gender with disabilities uh, yeah, I mean there no, are speakers I've, of course sure but uh, like we said there's no reporting there's no media talking about w-
1: women, it. Women with disabilities are even more vulnerable. And then if you tack on the risks they face uh, in the next phase of disasters, the sheltering, you know, that um, is complicated, too. Sexual violence, harassment, you know, oh, wow. these things can happen, too. Uh, not to mention, you know, just considerations of, of reproductive health care while in a sheltering a shelter. situation. Uh, you know, maybe some of these women would require full-time assistance, Fair. care. You know, are their families, were their families able to also evacuate with them? Is there space for their caregiver if it's not a, f- a family member? A family with multiple
0: PWDs as well?
1: I saw them too uh, oh, wow. in, my, in my reporting. Uh, in Bangladesh, I certainly came across that, families with multiple children with disabilities. Um, so, Yeah. All these things, and it's not clear, you know, have the staff, the volunteers, and these, again, are largely volunteers who work these shelters during an evacuation. They, you know, they provide food and and basic care, but, you know, how much can they really know about caring for someone with multiple disabilities, someone who really needs certain care? Yeah, yeah and i so and it's you know any i you know and i think up to this point the sh- the evacuating and sheltering uh odisha has done a, a benchmarkable job uh with saving lives and protecting lives but it, it doesn't mean that they can rest on their laurels either you know there's always room for improvement but you know i, I absolutely want to give credit where credit is due um what has happened here since the 99 cyclone has has undoubtedly saved lives and I think for other countries or regions that have, you know similar demographics, uh, similar resources, similar you know e- economic um, situation conditions, I-, I-, I think what is ha- has happened here, you know, could be replicated for P- for areas that have like similar threats due to disasters and climate change related disasters.
0: Orissa is being actually hailed by the World Bank and multiple countries for the the way they have designed? the entire resilience sure. package and uh the policies that have been developed no doubt but um, is that enough post disaster
1: no, 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 nothing's ever enough right <laughs> you know it, it, this is always a bar that can kept being, Keep being raised, raised. Yeah uh so and this is and this is where the the problems that were identified by the people I spoke with, not only the advocates here in Bhubaneswar, but also the people on the ground who I met, there was little in terms of post-disaster rehabilitation and recovery. So I'm thinking of one interview that I did with a woman uh, who lives in Puri not too far off the beach uh, during Cyclone Fanny in 2019 she was able to evacuate herself to the Shelter it was right down the the road from where she lives. It was a school. The school was inaccessible, so she had to park her three wheeled motorized tricycle outside the shelter, and you know, basically, someone had to drag her into the shelter. There's there was only one step, but one step is enough to make it inaccessible right, to right. get into. It. And this was like a, a school, and she said, you know, almost instantly, her trike was you know blown down the street wow. uh, by the winds of the cyclone and damaged, you know, unrepairable. Un- damaged.
0: And we don't have a policy to replace these? It took
1: three months and it took a lot of pushing and she had to reach out to advocates in Puri uh, to help her get a replacement because she's a working woman. She uh, runs kind of a home kitchen where she's preparing some kind of chicken dish and then, Mm -hmm. you know, she would cook it in her Mm -hmm. very, very modest home uh, in Puri. uh, And then, you know, Get onto her trike and then go to a, a busier section along maybe one of the busier roads amazing. in her neighborhood and and sell that. And that that's her main way. And she doesn't have children. She I don't believe she had a, a spouse. Like, that is her main way. Uh, she is, you know, a very independent person in, in many regards. You know, she right. she supports herself. She, you know, I think she said she, you know, had contracted polio as a child and that impacted her mobility. Uh, but you know she I don't know she she is a very resilient person, but for those 3 months that she did not have her mobility device, it really impacted her ability to earn an, to earn an income and she already mm. lived in a very economically precarious situation and so that disaster coupled with the difficulty in getting a replacement device only worsened her economic situation.
0: I mean, not just disasters. Uh, you know, what about beyond the disasters? What are the solutions that we're looking at?
1: Sure. Uh, I, I mean, and I, and I think we have to look at solutions when we start talking about Absolutely. beyond. And I, something that every advocate that I've ever spoken with, you know, in Odisha, back home in my state of New Jersey, in the Philippines, where I've done reporting on this, and of course throughout Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, the Maldives, where I've been this year there aren't enough people with a disability at the table. Um, and the, you know, and this goes back again, you know, uh, with the reliance on, 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 on maybe just talking to the wealthy advocates. But, you know, when I had, off the record meetings here in Odisha, I I I spoke to the OSDMA. I I, I spoke with other local agencies here in Bhubaneswar. There are are very few people with a disability in any sort of policy making positions. Um, it does not appear at the OSDMA anyone is on staff that has uh, legisl has you know is at the drawing board uh, when these protocols are. Uh, are are put together.
0: What do they do in all these stakeholder meetings then? Like, you can talk about Sri Lanka and uh, Maldives and Bangladesh. They face the same issues.
1: Sure. Well, you know, so some of these agencies, they will bring in, again, outside consultants to have talks, but... um you know, are they, how much? How much is that just a formality, and how much is it really? Or do they being accept implemented? these suggestions? Is the question right? And then, you know, uh, bureaucrats are bureaucrats. Absolutely. They're going to, they're gonna, you know, they're going to do the amount of work that they're tasked with doing. And you know, the bottom line, you know, how much money does it cost to re, to augment storm shelters and make them accessible, or provide sign language interpreters, or come up with some other mechanism to provide um, sign uh, interpretation for people who are deaf? And that was something that I, I've heard from. people People here too, uh, deaf people who have experienced these storms, that there is very little information, or historically has been very little information provided in accessible formats for them.
0: So, when we talk about climate change, well, people don't really know the terminologies that are available uh, in the lexicon. Uh, We call it floods, we call it droughts, we call it uh, cyclones, we call it migration. Where are the policies regarding the same? Uh,
1: Well, sure, Deepshir. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, and and certainly there's a lot of policy and awareness uh, across the board that is lacking. But I just think, you know, an example here uh, in Odisha about, you you mentioned migration. You know, India's first climate change migrants uh, uh, has been, you know, said to be people from Satavaya here in Odisha. This was a community of people who made their living off the Bay of Bengal, fishing and, and, and such, uh, but because of erosion that had been exacerbated by sea level rise um, over the past decade or so, they had been moved inland, some, I, I can't remember, maybe it was 15 kilometers, so they their whole way of living, the way they earned an income, supported their families, had changed because of the relocation policy I am unaware, and I, I tried looking into this, speaking with advocates who had done work in Satavaya, there was no consideration given given about disability and how these people were relocated. And I just think, you know, if we're talking about beyond a disaster, uh, and, you know, sea level rise, let's say, is a slow-boiling disaster. You know, it's it's something you measure very incrementally. Um, someone who has a disability and, let's say, does earn an it- living off of working to a, a fishing adjacent industry. Make, maybe they're making fishing nets, maybe they're selling at a market. If all of a sudden you don't live on the coastline and you you know can't easily get to the coastline, you know, may, maybe there's I don't know what kind of accessibility is available and where these communities were moved to. A person with a disability can completely lose their source of income, their support networks. You name it, and and I've seen this in the Philippines, uh, and to some extent in Bangladesh, and I and I think the Maldives, where I've done I've done some reporting, will need to consider this too. Down the line, would you tell us a
0: little about these countries that you've been in these small island nations, how they're dealing with climate change and disasters, for that matter?
1: Sure thing. So I. Over the course of the past year, I spent time reporting in Bangladesh, uh, first as a, as a National Geographic explorer. And then starting in February, I did three months here in Odisha, followed by two months in Sri Lanka, mostly out of wow. Colombo, but did some field work there. And then two months in the Maldives, uh, where I, I went to some islands. Um, you know, the, the circumstances. In the Bay of Bengal, so coastal Bangladesh and here in Odisha, quite similar. An increase of severe tropical cyclones, sea level rise, warming waters, uh, fluctuating monsoon seasons. You know, the monsoon is not starting when it used to, and that and that affects you know fishing. That affects agriculture. You know, so there's all these kind of side effects. so the the concerns in Bangladesh and here were quite similar. Sri Lanka a little different. Still in the northern Indian Ocean, which the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says is, is one of the fastest changing uh, regions due to climate change. Uh, in Sri Lanka, um, I you know I had difficulty getting in touch with. Any government official. I, I So I, I, I really wanted to focus on more anecdotal stories, you know, real experiences uh, by, in particular, women with a disability who had become disabled during Sri Lanka's 30 year long civil war. So I, I went up to Manar in the north, the Tamil speaking area, where I met some women who had lost uh, limbs. During the war, they they were they were fighters uh, and had been injured during explosions or, or other types of uh, you know warfare. Uh, and you know, one one interview I did with someone uh, really stuck out to me. You know, she talked about the the trauma, not of becoming a disability, becoming disabled. She said she she had accepted that long ago. She has a job. She has a family, children. She said the trauma comes back during floods. That when her community, which is in a low lying area, it's fairly close to the sea ponds and some lakes in her surrounding area, it floods. And Sri Lanka is seeing more floods and kind of cloudburst scenarios where you're having downpours really fast. And, you know, that's not enough time for the land to absorb water in that kind of volume. So, you know, she said, as someone who only has one arm, uh, she cannot take both of her very young children to the shelter. Uh, She said, so she has to make a choice, you know, who to carry to the shelter first. And then she would have to come back uh, and get another child. And I think wow. I think this has only happened once. And I and I don't recall offhand now from the interview if her husband was also there. But the husband I I think is not often there because I, I believe he's a fisherman. Um so, you know, she said it's it's that time when, you know, she's faced with these new threats by climate change, uh, that, you know, it starts making her think about the times before the war when she didn't have a disability and how this all is complicated. Uh, and she, of course, was unaware. Uh, she, there, there was no provisions in place where she lived to assist with evacuating. You would really have to rely on family members or neighbors to help you out if you had fa- you know, family members that, that needed assistance during a, a, an evacuation.
0: And what about your experience in Maldives?
1: We've all heard... How vulnerable the Maldives is to sea level rise. It's the world's flattest country. Uh, There are some, you know, just under 200 inhabited islands across the country. Uh, But, you know, there are reports that say by 2050, something like 70% of inhabitable land in the Maldives will no longer be inhabitable because of increased flooding or sea level rise, erosion. So, I expected when I spent the final two months of my Fulbright research in the Maldives that I, I would hear more about plans for relocations and evacuations, and I didn't. Um, it, I, I It was really surprising. Um, people that I spoke to uh, did not seem to think that was needed or would ever even happen. When I tried talking to people about disasters related to climate change, all people could think about was the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami, which, of course, was very traumatic. It just washed over these islands, uh, and I, I spoke to people who survived that. Um but I did not see, and I and I talked to government officials, disaster management officials, and they said they have a long way to go to include people with disabilities in their disaster planning, uh, and especially uh, you know, and, and again, and I think with relocations uh, like we've seen here in Odisha that I spoke about, like that doesn't seem to really be on on the radar, at least vis a vis sea level rise. Um, but you know, I just think about accessibility in the Maldives, they're making a lot of progress and and new construction does have ramps and buses uh, around the capital area have ramps to get onto the buses. Uh, But, you know, I visited one island where they had built an evacuation shelter in the years following the tsunami. And to get into that shelter, you have to go up 15 steps. There was no ramp, there was no lift elevator. And I spoke with a guy who lives on that island. He uses a wheelchair. And he said, how am I supposed to stay safe if there's a flood or because of a sea level rise, another tsunami? He's like, who's going to pick me up? to take me up those steps. And I, I, I don't even know if that's possible with his type of, of disability, if it's even safe to carry him. So I, I was a little surprised about the lack of consideration uh, you know, in terms of universal design, accessibility uh, for that shelter. Now I, I've heard on some other islands that they do have uh, more accessible shelters, uh, but it doesn't seem to be across the board.
0: And do you have any good takeaways from these countries some implementations that have happened, some ideologies, ideas that they've been following.
1: I think here in Odisha had the most positive um benchmarkable uh, protocol and other measures in, in place compared to what I, I've seen throughout South Asia or even back in the U.S. and New Jersey, where I'm from. Uh, there is a conversation here, at least, about how to include people with a disability in in disaster policy, uh, a discussion that has been led by this kind of small but vocal advocacy network community here in Bhubaneswar and, and in the, the surrounding districts. Uh, they are pressuring government officials to make DRR and, and many other policies more inclusive and accessible. But, you know, again, when you're up against a, a thick wall of bureaucracy, Progress is going to be slow, and if you don't have people on the inside, you know, disabled people helping make those decisions, then the progress will be even slower. But again, I I think what I saw here in Odisha is is commendable in, in in many ways. Doesn't mean they can stop and you know pat themselves on the back now. There's still more work to be done, but there has been progress made here that could be replicated in other places.
0: On that note. Thank you so much, Jason, for being here. Miles to go before we sleep, of course.
1: Yes, thank you, Deepsha. It was a pleasure.
0: Do you have a message for our listeners?
1: If you would like to follow any of my work and reporting, you can visit my website, lens15.com. Sign up for my newsletter, where later this year, I will... Start producing uh, some of the content, the reporting, as, as well as filming that I did while I was here in Odisha and around the region.
0: Thank you, Jason. Thank, Thank you so you. much.
1: Thank you.